Hey everyone, welcome back to Nutrition for Noobs. If you're just joining us, we're the podcast that takes the complexity of nutrition and breaks it down for noobs like me. So I am your chief executive noob, Kevin Harries. And I'm the other noob? I, what am I? I'm a- you're not the noob. <laughs> you're the... Hey... Okay, podcast over. We need to we need to talk a little bit. You are the expert. You are the nutrition. Oh, that's terrifying. No, yeah, I'm <laughs> I am Michelle Pierce Hamilton. I'm an enthusiastic human nutritionist, tea sommelier, healing arts practitioner, and I'm just delighted to be here. Thank you so much, Kevin. And she is absolutely not a noob. There's only room for one noob on this here podcast, Missy, and that's me. <laughs> I'm the deep, deep nerd. You're the, sure, okay, so you're the, I don't know, I can't make an acronym out of that. Anyways, so thank you for joining us, and if this is your first podcast, welcome. We're a lot of fun, I'd like to think. Uh, If you are just joining us, you can listen to these episodes in any order you want, but it might be good to go back and listen to one or two earlier ones just to set some of the baseline of the information that we have for you. So today, we're going to be looking up our family tree. So as we talked about way, 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 way back in I think episode two it was, we were talking about humans and genetically, uh, not genetically, but anthropologically, humans have been around for a really long time. And we started as hunters and gatherers, which brings us to a good question Were we hunters or were we gatherers or were we somewhere in between and a little bit of both? Because I think we started off as nomadic peoples. Then we settled down and we became farmers in small communities. And now we create podcasts. (laughs) So the question today is really about genetically or physically speaking, were ancient humans hunters? i.e. carnivores, gatherers, i.e. herbivores, or a mix of both, because this has an impact on our health today and what we eat and what we are genetically predisposed to eat and, and get the nutrients from the types of food. So the question is, it, it's a tough question, but what does the evidence tell us? And can we even know what these ancient people were like? So... Michelle, start us off. I don't even know where to begin, to be honest, so I hope you do. Uh, well, you know what? I um, Let me start by just setting up that I'm a nutritionist. I attend a lot of scientific symposiums. I have a few certifications, but I'm not an anthropologist. Um, I'm not an... I've never studied archaeology or any any of those, you know, historical sciences, but we do often in my field have to look backward at humanity in order to understand why things are the way they are and why how the human body operates and it's so interesting this is there this is such a widely debated subject so i was definitely raised through my schooling i think you were too through elementary school and secondary school that we are as humans we are omnivores yes that we are by our design, able to digest both plants as well as animal foods. And then there was this, as you've said it, this notion that we were hunters and gatherers. 
I think the conversation for many decades just sort of stopped there. And there was, I mean, I don't know what the anthropologists were doing, but it, it wasn't until I'm going to say 2018, I think was the first time that I was at a scientific symposium where there were a whole bunch of very highly educated people who are in these fields who got up and presented a different perspective. And then it comes up again and again and again more as these disease rates are discussed and the fact that our healthcare systems are not equipped to handle the sick care that we're faced with in North America. And I'm talking mainly about United States and, and Canadian healthcare systems collapsing under the rates of chronic disease, et cetera. And so I think more people have been looking more critically at the question and inviting more of these people at the table. Because what's interesting, Kevin, and this is sort of my preface to the whole conversation, what I find so interesting, like it, just in my little peon corner of the world, where I've got a little shingle out that's saying that I can help people with, you know, their diet and their lifestyle and, and help them get healthier. Every time I dive into the evidence and go, okay, let's pretend that I don't know anything. And I always do that because the science, I, I often say it changes so quickly and that's not even the right way to say it. It's we learn more like that, that science, it progresses, pro progresses at a rate that we learn something deeper. Or we learn something broader that we didn't know before that is a missing piece to why we see people plateau and why, you know, certain people struggle losing weight and other people don't. They may be identical twins and things like that, right? Right. And so I dive in and pretending I don't know anything just in case, you know, there's been some new study, you know, so I'll go look through PubMed, I'll look through Google Scholar, I'll, I'll look, you know, through other search engines and try to bring up articles. And then fortunately, as a nutritionist, I have access to resources and I'll check out nutritionfacts.org, et cetera. And what I found researching, one time I remember I had a person who, you know, had, you know, high risk for heart disease, they had diabetes and, and, and those types of conditions. And then I had a different client at the same time I was researching with a very rare autoimmune condition. And at the same time, I was helping somebody that had an aggressive and, and fairly rare form of stage uh, 2B cancer. And I was researching all three of these people at the same time. And this was the big aha moment for me. Every time I researched every single one of those people, and I have a different book for each client, and I make all these, you know, voracious notes about everything, about their condition and contraindications, blah, 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 and, you know, what, what the ideal thing. But the foods, the foods to reverse the condition or lessen the symptoms or aid in the recovery, whatever language you want to use for each one of those people. And in many of those cases, by the way, there there is literature from other people who are professionals that sometimes reversal is possible. I'm not allowed to say that in my profession, but I'm just citing what I've read in these articles. They were all the same foods. They were all reduce your consumption of animal-based products um, be in order to lower your saturated fat exposures, uh, lower heme iron, lower IGF-1, um, stop the production of TMAO, basically reducing inflammation throughout the whole body, um, proliferate the body with healthier gut bacteria. Like I can go on and on and on and on. And it was always eat more plants, eat less animal food. And my mind was blown by that. Right. Because I was expecting them to be far more individualized. Like I was expecting it to be more of 
well, if you have this condition, then you should eat more of this. Right, if you have right. this condition, you should eat more of that. And that's not what I found. It was such a mind-blowing realization for me. And I think on some level, we always knew that it was good for us, no matter what, to eat lots of fruits and vegetables. I didn't realize that the human body is the human body. It has an anatomy and a physiology that works most optimally when it is fed certain things and it starts to work less optimally when other things are introduced in the diet. It can tolerate things very well. We're built, as I've said before, to be complex adaptive systems. We can do an awful lot to our body before it goes uncle. (laughs) (laughs) We're very adaptable. I mean, humans have always been adaptable. We are. Yeah, makes sense. And that's why we've been able to be nomadic and move out of Northern Africa and spread throughout the world and, and adapt to different conditions. But that foundation, that foundation of our anatomy and physiology is fairly static. So that's where I want to start from. I had that aha moment. And then let's go to 2018. I'm in these symposiums and I'm like, what? Everybody's, everybody's talking about this now all of a sudden. I'm, and it was so interesting. So I'm going to share a bit about what I learned. Sure. And uh, so a, a brief history of humans. The first thing that was kind of interesting What's your image, Kevin, of the Roman gladiator? Like, did you, did you ever watch any of the, like, Cleopatra or any of those old movies, right? Of course, Ben-Hur. Yeah. So, so um, Roman gladiators, and we're talking first and second century AD, their term for them at the time, they were actually nicknamed the barley men. Did you know that? I had no idea. As in the grain barley. Yes, in the grain barley. So the Archaeology Institute of America published a series of scientific abstracts on on a study of 22 gladiators. Um, And this is from the ancient Roman city of Ephesus that is now Turkey. And in 20 out of 22 of the remains that they examined, two of them appeared to have higher animal protein and um, lower in in beans and grains. And, and they think that possibly two of those specimens originated from other geographical parts of the Roman Empire. Okay. So gladiators, just to give you some context, they were largely prisoners of war, or they were slaves, or they were condemned offenders for some reason. But also extraordinarily, sometimes apparently they were volunteers. But basically, they were trained for professional fighting. And um, so they were, you know, designed for weight gain, strength, agility, and to be able to survive like, you know, this absolutely brutal ring, this fight to the death. Right. And so this Archaeology Institute of America, through bone analysis, they confirmed that the gladiators, in order to achieve that strength and agility, et cetera, were given a diet that was primarily vegetarian. So it was rich in simple carbohydrates, such as mainly barley, wheat, beans, um, and then fortified with plant ash, presumably to add additional calcium and magnesium. I don't know how they knew that, but I'm not an archaeologist. So very, very interesting. The people who, you know, in ancient Rome that we have this 
image of them being the strongest and the toughest and being able to do this fight to the death that they were vegetarians. So <laughs> so I, I think it's I think there's two fascinating things about this. The first one is the fact that we can actually look back and see what people ate like 2000 years ago. Like that's that's astounding just in its on its own. But then, yeah, I, I agree that I think that the image that I have of gladiators are, you know, they go and fight the lion. And then once they killed the lion, they'd eat it because they eat all this protein and they, you know, they, they have the muscle gain. And, and so they, they'd eat a lot of a lot of meat. So it's very surprising that in, you know, 20 out of 22 of them, they were mostly plant-based and, and vegetarian. So that's that's astounding. Right. That's eye-opening. And, and given it's a very it's a very small sample size, but I mean, it was of just course. very interesting. And I think... Well, it, you can't go study the bones of like every dead person out there. Like I'm sure that... I'm sure studying one of those gladiator bones, you know, took like years and years and years and bazillions of dollars. So... Well, and, and there's more. And I think this is the reason why... I was starting to see around that time, I think it was the advancement of technology that's been occurring that is enabling them to study things in a way that they couldn't study okay. them before. And they were they, they were making conclusions. So one of the things um, one of the archaeologists said was that, you know, we used to have this image that, you know, we found all these tools and we assumed that all of these tools were for consumption of animals because they would find like small animal bones. But they wouldn't find remains of plants that they were eating because the plants would of have, not. Would have yeah. decomposed. So, so they yeah. thought that that was, you know, really not a valid argument on its own. You have to look at a much broader picture and you have to look at more factors. So the other thing I want to just qualify is that, you know, this little gladiator study doesn't doesn't speak to their health. It doesn't speak to their longevity. I mean, by nature of them, you know, being who they were, they often didn't live past their 20s. <laughs> but I think it's an interesting anecdote to start with, because I think one of the first perceptions is that if you don't eat a lot of animal food, aka protein, as we talked about in the last episode, that you're not going to be strong. You're, right. you're not you're not going to 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 build this, you know, lean muscle mass. And what what we now know with with even uh, population studies today, that that's absolutely not true. And that these diets of simple carbohydrates that come from leafy greens and grains and beans, etc., is the very diet that promotes lean muscle mass and the kind that supports the body with strength and agility and efficient use of energy and efficient storage in our energy cells. So that's really cool. Now, there was another, where did I see this come up? If the gladiators can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you can look all over the place, Kevin. This is all over the internet. You don't have to be diving into studies if you find that difficult to consume. I found this article, um, a reference of another specimen that they found. And the whole bunch of research sprang from a 2013 discovery of an early homo jawbone in Ethiopia, and it dated 2.8 million years ago, so 400,000 years older than the previous known oldest specimen that they had been studying called, you know, Homo sapien. We've all heard that. Right. But they found this jawbone like really close to where they had found Lucy. If you remember, Lucy was this 
human primate specimen that they had found that had they found the whole like her whole body because right. uh, she fell from her her death from a tree. So they this was like from the same time frame that's the same specimen, but they had a whole intact jawbone. So anyway, long and the short of it was they found all of this stuff and they analyzed all kinds of fossils from the same site, etc. And what they determined was that Lucy and her mates, I guess, were mainly grass grazers 2.8 million years ago. And some animals had moved to, you know, different areas, but for whatever reason, they had maintained eating mostly woodland, woodland diet. Okay. So this is significant. So primarily plant eating. And the long and the short of it is that these primates 2.8 million years ago, they were eating maybe some insects, um, maybe some birds and things like that woodland, but that was not their staple diet. That was not an everyday thing that they they found from like analyzing. I don't know. I don't even know what this means. Stable carbon isotopes in their teeth, um, and they were able to do CT scans and like all of these tests to determine conclusively what their diet had consisted of and what they had been eating, and um, they ate meat very very rarely, and they mainly persisted on grasslands. Well, it comes back to what you and I talked about in the first episode. We're innately very, very lazy. Yes, <laughs> me especially. And our ancestors lived in a very dangerous survival of the fittest environment. So we are physiologically designed to seek the most calorie density with the least amount of effort. So whatever we could reach for, would be the easiest. That would be what we would eat the most of. We might come across these things. There might be uh, a bird that died of natural cause or a rodent that died of a natural cause. We wouldn't be crouching in the forest. Actively seeking them out. I mean, not when we can just reach over and eat some berries and some greens and we can be quite, quite satisfied. And, and feel full afterwards, yeah. And have the energy to run away from something that's chasing you, right? Exactly. Or, or to climb a tree to get away from a predator or whatever, right? And so I think that that's just very logical to me as well. Mm -hmm. So not to say that we were strict vegans or anything like that. I think that's ridiculous. But, uh, you know, of course, it makes so much sense to me that would have been our natural diet. And, and um, I'm going to segue this into the next thing I want to talk about. That evidence is substantiated by our very physiology. So are you ready to go anatomy and physiology, Kev? Let's go anatomy and physiology, Michelle. Okay, so let's go anatomy and physiology. And a lot of the content I'm going to share with you, I got from an amazing presentation that I saw from Dr. Milton Mills. And, he, you know, he went goes very, very deep. It's a very, very long lecture, so I'm keeping it really short. Um, just Thank some you. of the salient points. We're not trying to go so deep into this nutrition for noobs thing. This We're all noobs. We're all noobs. We're all noobs. We can't handle that much. Yeah, we're just going to stick to some high-level stuff that's super easy for everyone to understand. And then maybe there's something in here that you go, hmm, I didn't think of it that way. It's really interesting. So let's start with the... Uh, the human digestive tract. The human digestive tract is about 
nine times our body length, right. which is consistent with the digestive tract of herbivores in the animal kingdom um, versus carnivores in the animal kingdom have a digestive tract that is only three times its body length. It's very, very short. Oh, I had no idea. So our digestive tract, so the, the, the very mechanism by which we assimilate nutrients and extract it from our food is very similar to almost identical, actually, to herbivores. And very, very, very different from carnivores. And this is the reason. Did you have you ever heard of somebody at some point in your life telling you that you should learn food combining? Yes. Okay, so that's because of we know that so for example, you shouldn't have fruit and meat in the same meal because meat takes a very, very long time to digest and break down in the human digestive tract and fruit digests very quickly. So if you have animal protein in there and then you eat some fruit afterwards, by the time the animal protein makes it through the digestive tract, the fruit will have putrefied and it will actually start to produce toxin in the digestive tract, which is not beneficial for us. Okay. Right? So it makes a lot of sense when you think, consider a carnivore's digestive tract is very, very short. So it, do, it doesn't spend a lot of time in there. So when we have high rates of Crohn's disease and colitis and all kinds of inflammatory bowel disease, when we see people have these very, very meat dense diets, because they're spending, they're just cramming a whole bunch of very slow to digest, very slow transit time, very dense um, animal proteins. And then they, they themselves will get stuck and putrefy and not having enough fiber from plant food to move it through. That's one of the things that contributes to those conditions. Okay. Okay. But let's go back to the mouth. I just, I have to make that digestive parallel first because it's, it's kind of paramount. Right. So let's take a look at the jaw. The jaw of a carnivore is hinged and it's stable because carnivores don't chew. Have you ever watched your cat or your dog? eat they swallow things in very large chunks swallow them almost whole they don't they don't sit there and chew versus chewing is very very important for humans well it's very important for for herbivores our jaw moves from side to side and it can also move forward for us to do that chewing action um, the teeth of a carnivore is designed for ripping and tearing and cutting uh, versus herbivores have molars that are designed for chewing and grinding. Even what we call canines, like our canines are not like fangs and sharp and designed to rip and tear flesh, right? A very little tiny piece of flesh. Because <laughs> they're little <laughs> tiny canines. Very tiny canines. They're not, they're maybe designed to tear the flesh of a piece of fruit, but not to cut through the skin of an animal. We have a very weak bite strength um, um, of humans, as do herbivores, a bite strength of about 135 to 150 pounds per square inch, versus carnivores have an extremely powerful bite strength of 300 to 1,000 pounds per square inch. The carnivore saliva doesn't contain any enzymes. The herbivore saliva has amylase. So we have salivary amylase because our digestion actually begins in our mouth with salivary amylase to break down, you guessed it, carbohydrates. Right. Our esophagus is narrow and it's muscular. And 
we can only swallow a bolus of well-chewed food. And people who don't chew their food well often end up choking and having difficulty, right? But we, then that's why your mom or your grandma always told you, chew your food, chew your food, chew, chew your, your food, food 20 right? times. Yeah, exactly. And, and chewing your food also sends off an, a mechanism, a signal between our brain and our gut to tell our digestive organs that something's coming and to get start, ready and to start secreting enzymes, right? So there's a whole bunch of reasons why we chew, but the esophagus so our esophagus has to have a, this chewed bolus in order for the food to travel. But the esophagus of it, a carnivore is very wide and it's distendable. And in it, in it, it, you can swallow like chunks of flesh and bone. Because they can't chew as well because of their jaw. Okay. It's all coming together. I see. Yeah. And um, so we also, we can purse our lips and like an herbivore can in order to create a vacuum to suck up water. But carnivores have to lap water with their tongue. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all these things are very interesting. It's like, wow, I never thought of it that way, right? Of course. Like I've noticed it a million times, but I haven't noticed it at all until just now when you point it out. And it's like, yeah, that makes complete sense that a cat laps water and a cat chews with their mouth open. Well, some humans do that too, but... <laughs> well, not exactly, but we won't go into that. Stop talking about me. No, but... And pieces fall out. And also I've seen like sometimes my cat would eat, like just hoover down some piece of food and I'm amazed that they can that, that that she can do that but of course this makes sense if she has a huge esophagus like I would die if I tried to eat a a proportionately big piece that that she's able to eat but that makes sense now if they if they're made to eat larger chunks because they can't chew it down to smaller finer pieces you know and yeah I Otis, my everyone who knows me knows that Otis, my Jack Russell pug, is the absolute love of my life. Oh yes. But um, you know, it's so it's so funny how I I always feel so inclined. Like we we feed Otis like really bougie dog food, right? Like I, I, his his diet is I would very expect very very expensive, and I'm always like. Even the soft stuff, I'm always like cutting it up into little pieces because I'm thinking, oh, because I, I want him, I want him to have be able to swallow it. And both Rob and I very instinctively do that. And then you know he'll go over to the bowl and it'll be gone in like two seconds. It'll be like, did you even taste that? It's like, hey, the pieces were too small. But we probably could just dump the whole chunk in there and he wouldn't care. Of course. But it's it's our, like, we, we sort of personify him. And like... Of course. <laughs> we, we all personify our animals. And so you treat them like a child. And it's like, oh, I need to cut up the meat for my child because my child needs to take tiny little... Di and meanwhile, the dog is... <laughs> That'll sound good in the podcast. Yeah. Sorry, my apologies... For anyone who is wearing earphones and, and suddenly had that on their morning commute or something, they did not need that. That reminds me of one of those like old fashioned radio shows. Remember when you used to, and they had all the sound yes. effects? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Don't get me started. Do not get me started. So back to the GI tract, upper GI tract. Yes. So a carnivore yes. has, as I said, a very short intestine designed for a very low fiber diet. Herbivores have a very long intestine designed for a, a high fiber diet in order to extract nutrients from those fibers. Um, and then um, carnivores have primarily protein and fat digesting enzymes. 
And herbivores have a variable mix of enzymes for carbohydrate, fat, and protein, and an unlimited capacity to digest and absorb carbohydrates. So we are, because we are carbohydrate burning organisms. It is our body's preferred source of fuel. It is our brain's only source of fuel. So carnivores have extremely large stomachs. Okay, get this, Kevin. A carnivore stomach can withstand consuming 30% of its body weight in one meal. <laughs> well, because they're not going to eat every day or every... It's feast or famine. Yeah. yeah. It's like the snake that eats once a month. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> we can't do that, however... We can, no. we can, we have very small stomachs. We, the human stomach or the consistent with the herbivore stomach in the animal kingdom uh, can eat an average of 3.33% of its own body weight per day, as opposed to 30%. Right. So that's pretty telling. And then in the wild, a carnivore eats every seven to 10 days and maybe seven to 10 days between its next kill, which is why it can consume so much. Right. Um, but herbivores must eat ideally multiple times per day in order to meet its daily, um, energy intake and energy requirement. So I found that to be very, very interesting. I'm not saying anybody has to be exclusively hundred percent plant-based or plant forward. I'm just saying to be predominantly plant plant-based in what you're eating. And then that will be your ticket to your best health. Enjoy your fish and, and you know, enjoy small amounts of, of chicken or good quality chicken, good quality steak, whatever you enjoy, but small, small amounts. Don't let them push the vegetables and the grains and the beans off of your plate. The 64 inch porterhouse steak <laughs> with a side of fries and keep the main thing, the main thing. So if you know what the body's primarily source of fuel is, keep that the main thing and make these other things accessories that you might have every seven to 10 days like a carnivore would. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I don't know what the listeners think about this today, but it's just really interesting perspective that, you know, we we weren't really the hunters that we thought we were. Very, very small amounts of animal consumption were part of our ancestry. And then the movement towards more and more of that became more of a byproduct of our relocation, our geographical relocation, and our developing a taste for it. And and it became, you know, as we learned in the China study by T. Colin Campbell, that was fascinating just because of the amount of data they had. It was really only the wealthy people that could afford to have high amounts of animal protein. Of course. Dr. John McDougall, he calls um, a, a, a protein predominant diet the diet of kings and queens. That it's typically it's typically the people that can af that could afford those foods. Well, it and was a luxury. It 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 was like a, a you know a Christmas dinner always had. I mean, in England, it always had a goose or something, and that was often one of the few times in the year when the average working class would actually be able to afford they'd save up all year for this christmas for goose for their christmas goose right and that was the only protein they had so it sounds like at least for me the jury has decided that we were in fact probably mostly gatherers 
we are, of course, omnivores to a certain degree. And, you know, as you said earlier, you know, within moderation, a little bit of animal protein isn't going to kill us or anything and we can handle it. But it seems like our ancestors were much more gatherers than hunters. And if they eat meat, it might have been the byproduct of self-defense or something. You know, they, they, they were attacked, they killed the attacker, and then they decided, oh, since we've got this, might as well uh, use it. But otherwise, our ancestors were super lazy, in which case eating the leaves was so much easier than trying to go out and hunt down a mastodon. Yeah. And, and like I said, I didn't, I didn't go so deep into everything that Milton Mills and, you know, others that I've attended lectures of have shared. But I think, um, the other, the, the last thing that I should mention was, you know, when you look down at a cellular level, our mitochondria, our mitochondria is fueled by carbohydrate. So like there's, there's nothing in eating a piece of meat that is going to be like satisfy that preferred fuel that makes up the basis of all of the cells, um, energy production cells in our body. So I think that's a pretty big indicator. Exactly. No, that's, that's, that's very interesting. And it's, it's, it's not the conclusion that I thought we'd come to, to be honest, <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting and I've kept my mind open and it's, it's fascinating. I, love that. I, I find that really, really fascinating. All these the, the similarities that humans have much, 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 much more uh, in symmetry with, a, with an herbivore than with a carnivore. So in honor of the bone study of the gladiators, which still just kind of blows my mind that we can figure out what they ate, I have a little joke for you. Are you ready? Okay, I'm excited. What did the skeleton order with its beer? I don't know, Kevin. What did the skeleton order with its beer? A mop. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) One day I'll stop. One day, but not now. I got a lot of these. You know, that's a good Halloween joke. It is. When is this airing? Is this airing around Halloween? I think we'll have to make sure that it airs around Halloween. Happy (laughs) Halloween, everybody, even if it's the middle of February. Happy Halloween. You know, I have to tell you, I don't know if you've heard any feedback from people, but I just I just want to say thank you to all the listeners that have been providing their feedback. I don't know if I've been getting lots of feedback and people are loving this. They're loving Amazing. I'm glad because I'm loving doing it. And that reminds me, if you do have feedback, you can email us anytime at n4noobs at gmail.com. I would love that. I would love to get people's questions. n4noobs at gmail.com. I would love that, Kevin. I would love it if people send us in their questions. I mean, I'm getting anecdotally questions from people because, of course, I'm in my shop and so some of the some of the people that are listening that are coming in are our customers and they're like oh i listen to your podcast amazing and thank you they'll of course ask me random questions over the counter and things like that but i would love if we went far and wide and we got questions and then it could percolate our conversation and our thinking and i'd love to answer the questions out there Okay, so you heard it here first. The gauntlet has been thrown down. Michelle will answer any question you have. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Is that going a bit too far? Uh, Truthfully, I'll probably answer anything I want to answer, but... (laughs) 
any question whatsoever. It's an AMA. Ask Michelle anything. AMA. I love that. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, thank you so much, listeners. Thank you so much, Kevin. This is a lot of fun. I really look forward to it. Thank you, Michelle. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for opening my eyes to how much of a gatherer we used to be. I know, right? And thank you for listening. And until next episode, eat your greens. Be real, everyone. This has been Nutrition for Noobs. We hope you're a bit more enlightened about how your fantastic and complicated body works with the food you put into it. If you have a question or a topic you'd like Michelle to discuss, drop us a line at n4noobs at gmail.com. That's the letter N, the number 4, N-O-O-B-S at gmail.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast on whatever your favorite platform might be. Also, please consider leaving a review or telling your friends. That's the best way to spread the word. We'll see you next time with another interesting topic. The views and opinions expressed on Nutrition for Noobs are those of the hosts. It is not intended to be a substitute for medical, nutritional, or health advice. Listeners should seek a personal consultation with a qualified practitioner if they have any concerns or before commencing any actions mentioned in the podcast.